everyone and welcome to part two of our podcast on the new financial promotions rules in the UK in relation to crypto assets. Um, you may have already listened to part one, which we recorded uh, and uh, published yesterday, which was about the top level requirements that have come out in relation to restrictions on financial promotions in relation to crypto assets in the UK. Uh, this Today is part two. Part two is all about the detailed rules that the FCA has published in relation to how uh, you know, how firms have to go about compliance with financial promotions rules, in particular, looking at uh, monetary and non-monetary inducements, standardized risk warnings, direct offer promotions, uh, and frictions around onboarding, as well as many other things. Um, so my name's George Morris. I'm a partner in the Digital Business Group uh, in London uh, at Simmons & Simmons. Uh, you may have heard the introduction from me yesterday, but just in case you didn't, uh, so I'm a a partner in the team focusing on crypto asset regulation, cross-border issues, new product launches, etc. Once again, I'm joined by Gordon, who's very capable of introducing himself. Thanks, George. Yeah, my name is Gordon Ritchie, a supervising associate in the financial services regulatory team in London, specialising in crypto asset regulation. So yesterday uh, we described kind of what had been published, and just to recap, there was sort of two levels of of rules within. Uh, these new, uh, what, what was published yesterday. So part one, as we described uh, yesterday, uh, this is all about, you know, part one of the podcast was all about um, the new top level requirements as they apply in terms of the sort of basic essential restriction on financial promotions activity when it comes to crypto. This podcast is all about the FCA's rules, which are much more detailed in that they set out, if you're a UK firm, what do you have to do in order to comply with financial promotions, not just in terms of the top level requirement, but setting out additional standards that you need to, to follow when you are running your business in the UK. Um, so there's quite a lot in here and it be th this podcast is just so we can kind of get into some of the detail. Quite a lot of it's quite problematic as well. Um, but Gordon, I just wanted to get into a little bit more um, uh, around sort of how the, if I can describe the sort of top level stuff versus the FCA rules, how the two interact together. You know, is it UK firms only? Do offshore firms need to worry about this? What What's the sort of standard that people need to worry about in this in this piece? So technically, these rules will only apply to UK authorised firms and they've brought in UK registered firms. So those firms that are registered under the MLRs to carry out crypto asset activity. However, as we discussed yesterday, offshore firms are able to do financial promotions if they're able to get a third party authorised firm to approve those financial promotions for them, which would have to be a UK authorised firm. And so there's a sort of indirect application of these rules um, to those offshore firms that are using this third party approver who would be themselves subject to these rules. So, um, so yeah, while it technically doesn't apply directly to the offshore firm, if they were to go through this um, third party approver route, these rules, they should still be aware of them. And that's quite difficult, isn't it? Because when you've got um, when you've got an offshore firm, as we described in part one yesterday, there's very few uh, ways in which they can, you know, go about actually carrying out financial promotions. And one of the main ways in which an offshore firm will be able to do so will be through a third party approver. So it is quite restrictive when you think about how, you know, if you need to go through a third party approver as an offshore firm, a non-UK firm you will become subject to these rules indirectly, which, and obviously as, as people will hear on this podcast, some of these rules are quite restrictive and impose quite significant requirements on firms. Yep. So in terms of the core elements, uh, we've got you know, a number of different aspects to this, but the first thing I think is the, the monetary and non-monetary inducements and the restriction on those. 
would you mind Gordon just going through in a bit more detail kind of what the what the, the rules and restrictions are in relation to these? Sure so this basically relates to retail clients so if you're doing marketing to retail clients you're not able to com communicate that financial promotion which relates to crypto assets in this case this is already uh, enforced by the way for other restricted mass market investments so uh peer-to-peer -peer lending products and non-readily realizable securities so all of these rules that we're discussing today are already in place um for those sorts of assets but so crypto assets have just been brought in scope here um but yeah so firm can't communicate uh a financial promotion to a retail client where it includes any monetary or non-monetary incentive to invest um so that includes things like offering bonuses um refer a friend is being removed cashbacks um discounts when investing in a particular amount um of an investment there's things that are basically encouraging somebody to take a snap decision and go oh if i don't do this now then i won't be able to um benefit from this extra sort of uh incentive to be able to do an investment so the, the SEA are really trying to cut down on just encouraging people to get into the products without thinking through the risks fully yeah, and that makes sense because I think the FCA has, has had a nervousness for a long time that there's been inducements uh, to to get retail customers into the market. Uh, and yeah, they want to make sure that those are minimised to the greatest extent possible. I suppose the other piece is, is a little bit of sort of education of customers in relation to risk and the standardised risk warning piece. Um, do you want to go through that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so the, the standardised uh, risk warning, that's going to have to, again, apply to all um, restricted mass market investments of which crypto assets are included. Um, so this is basically just a case of having a standardised risk warning, which is going to be mandated by the FCA, the words that you're going to have to use. Um, and then that's also got to link out to a risk summary. Um, so there's they've already published risk summaries for the other investment types. We're waiting to see the standard risk summary for crypto assets, but it'll be a case of don't invest unless you're prepared to lose all your money sort of language with a take two minutes to learn more, which will be a hyperlink out to a risk summary, which the FCA will make sure that all firms have to kind of include. It, there might be some leeway depending on the product types that are being offered by different crypto asset firms as to which exact risks you have to include. But it's very much a case of trying to bring in this education for customers so that they're aware of, of the risks of crypt, investing in crypto assets. Yeah. And then so that those two are sort of um, painful but potentially manageable and then we have the final piece which is around direct offer financial promotions and the frictions that need to be applied in onboarding which I think is is what most people are focused on when they've been looking at the FCA rules and, and rightly so because they are extremely painful but I suppose we, we need to get into a little bit more detail about when these apply or at least what the rules say about when these apply um, and uh, and the FCA's view on when they apply and then actually what they are. So what in very broad terms, essentially, you have two different types of financial promotions. You've got general financial promotions, which we talked about in part one, which is anything that is an invitation or inducement to enter into crypto asset activity in very broad terms. Uh, and that covers obviously any financial promotion It's the top level definition. And then we have a subset definition of that, which is a direct offer financial promotion, which is where you have a promotion, uh, a financial promotion, which within that promotion has within it the means by which you can actually you know, engage in the products to, or in this case, you know, invest in crypto assets. Um, and so it's a subset of the financial promotion definition. 
Um, and yeah, you can imagine, say, a promotional email that you send to a customer that uh, talks about the benefits of your product and then has a button within it that says invest now within there. You know, assuming that that invest now then takes you straight to the, the trading flow, then that's highly likely to be a, a direct offer financial promotion. And what the FCA have said is that before customers are allowed to see direct offer financial promotions, so before they can be sent these direct offers, they need to have gone through a series of, um, of frictions in uh, within their relationship with the platform. Um, and those frictions are really where the, the difficulties are coming up. There's a lot of um, nuance within everything I've just described there. But Gordon, it'd be great to go into a bit more detail about what the FTA said around direct offers and when the frictions apply and then we can go into actually what the frictions are and sort of how they're going to be built within onboarding workflows. Sure so the FCA in the policy statement that was released claimed to be very clear as to when a direct offer financial promotion happens and they just basically reiterate that um, the definition that they've had for a number of years so to be clear, the direct offer financial promotion concept isn't new to this policy statement or to crypto assets. This has been around for a long time in relation to traditional securities, but it's not been used in quite this way before. And uh, and so, yeah, so they, as George mentioned there, it's a financial promotion that contains an offer by the firm um, to enter into a crypto asset activity with, um, and the offer contains the means of responding to that. And so generally we'd think that and the guidance does suggest that it's it's possible in a way to, to not have a direct off financial promotion. You just do financial promotions and then separately people can invest and they shouldn't have to have any of these frictions. And that that does seem to be what they suggest in some parts of the policy statement. But in other parts, it's very much um, they equate direct off financial promotions with a request to be able to invest from a, from a customer. And they're, to me, quite different things. Seeing a, a financial promotion and investing is different to being asked, uh, can I invest in a product without seeing any crypto uh, crypto asset promotions, for example. So um, they definitely conflate these two areas and they seem to be suggesting in a lot of their uh, material that they just expect all firms to be putting these frictions in place for any onboarding before you buy crypto assets. And they, yeah, it, it does just seem a little bit unclear still. So hopefully we do get a bit more clarity on that. They they might just come out and say, we we just expect firms to be doing this for all onboarding before you buy or sell crypto assets. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with you on that point around them not being clear about when they apply. I think, um, unfortunately, sort of slightly deliberate, deliberately so, because obviously it, it is very beneficial from the FCA's perspective to have firms just taking the view that, that the frictions apply regardless. We'll get into what the frictions are in a second, but uh, one of the things I thought was notable was when, I think, I can't remember if it was last month or the month before when the FCA published its letter to the industry essentially about these new rules coming into place. And particularly um, the letter was was focused on offshore firms um, to, to make clear that these rules generally, as we talked about in part one yesterday, these rules have extraterritorial effect. Uh, but one of the things they didn't uh, uh, they didn't make clear was actually that the the frictions come from the FCA's rules, which technically only apply to UK firms, and indeed, as you've just described, only apply when you're doing direct offers. So it was it was very much the the, the tone of the letter was, um, you know, as a firm, you're just going to need to implement the frictions if you have UK customers, and it's sort of there's a lot more nuance to it than that. But I think having said all that. 
there's a lot of that you know if you're a uk firm generally i think it makes sense that you're going to have to just apply the friction simply because the fca clearly has a, a view that it's very difficult to operate a platform without doing direct offers uh, it seems and so it may just be something that that the industry has to accept in relation to uk customers um but uh, we've talked a lot about sort of the, the problems, but I guess one of the key problems is actually what the, the frictions and the nature of them. So, Gordon, can you go through a little bit more of the, the sort of four steps that the FCA expects to see for, for new customers, certainly, and then how that's different for existing customers when these rules come into force? Sure. So the first condition that they have is this cooling off period. Um, so from before, um, so after a, a request to see a direct offer finance promotion or after a request, they'll be able to buy some crypto asset. Um, the firm has to wait at least 24, hour, uh, 24 hours before they're able to show the, the client that the direct offer financial promotion or let them invest in crypto assets. So this is just a way, again, of stalling, making people aware of risk um, and that you've got at the end of this 24 hour period present to the, the customer in sort of equal prominence and the option to leave the investment journey or continue the investment journey. So it's, you, you basically, yeah, you're saying, here's 24 hours you've waited you've had time to think about this do you still want to proceed yes or no um so the that's yeah just slows things down you can do other things while that cooling off period isn't in force so and the second condition is the personalized risk warning um and the third uh, condition is the appropriateness test and the fourth one is uh, customer categorization all of those things can be done during this 24-hour period so we'll go into a bit, bit more detail of what those are but so it's not a case of cooling off period and then you start the onboarding process you can go through all of the other steps during that 24 hours but you've got to wait the 24 hours before you let the investment activity happen yeah and you can and you can do things like kyc processes in the yeah. background as well can't you so yeah hopefully at least it's mitigated to some extent Certainly. So, um, so yeah, as I mentioned there, then the second condition is the personalized risk warning. So this is going to be quite similar to the standard risk warning that you've got to do for any financial promotion. But this one, you've through the onboarding process, you'll have got the customer's name and you have to basically say X name. This is a high risk investment. How are you going to feel if you lose your money doing this? And then again, link out, take two minutes to learn more, link out to a, uh, a risk summary where you'll get more specific risks about the, the product that they're going to be investing in. So this is, again, just a way of, yeah, really <laughs> driving home the fact that there are risks here and it's not just a standardized one. You're using somebody's name to really draw attention to the fact that there's risk. And um, apparently, according to the FCA's research, this is uh, a lot more effective than just a standardized risk warning. And then so yeah, the third condition, so I should say those two conditions, they're just for first time investors. Um, so the FCA on uh, in their consultation and policy statements have acknowledged the fact that these things are probably not that effective if you've already been trading a number of times, you've been a customer for these platforms for a year or two already, then seeing it, having a cooling off period doesn't really make sense. You're already in the game. Um, same with the personalized risk warning. Um, but these third and fourth conditions are are applicable to all, all customers. And so even if you've been um, carrying out business already um, in the UK, then you would still be having to do the customer categorization and the um, appropriateness assessment for your existing customer base. So the yes, this third condition is the categorization. So you've, you've got to categorize your customer as either a sophisticated investor, um, or sorry, a high net worth investor, they've removed the self, uh, 
certified sophisticated investor for um for crypto assets so it's high net worth investors which are those with an income over a hundred thousand pounds or net assets of two hundred and fifty thousand pounds um certified as a sophisticated investor so that's where you have an authorized firm who's certifying your investor is um sophisticated which is pretty rare to be honest most authorized firms don't really want to be engaging in that um and then a restricted investor which is someone who has not in the previous 12 months invested more than 10 percent of their net assets in these sorts of restricted mass market investments and is saying that they won't over the forthcoming 12 months invest more than 10 percent of their net assets um or the i guess the fourth category there is none of the above in which case they shouldn't be able to be investing in crypto assets and so yeah, you've got to be one of those three to be able to invest in crypto assets um and then if not then you should be being offboarded basically mm-hmm. um and then yeah the fourth and final condition there is the appropriateness assessment so after all of these you've categorized people, you've given them the cooling off period, you're then having to do a test basically to see whether they understand the product and understand the risks of the product. And so the FCA has done a bit of guidance on this actually. So they've come out and said that you shouldn't be having binary yes, no answers to questions. You should be um, asking like a reasonable number of questions. They should be changing if you, so you can reset the test if you fail it. But it, if you're resetting it it should be a different set of questions so people can't learn from um what the mistakes have been before um and after a second fail you've got to be waiting again 24 hours before you can sit for a third time um so there's there's a bit of guidance come out from the fca there but i think this is something that we'll probably see more more on after six months 12 months after this comes into force for crypto assets once the fca has seen what firms are doing there'll probably be a lot more guidance coming out and uh the fca saying that firms aren't doing this well enough i would imagine i think that's going to be something they're going to be looking at quite closely and definitely there's not an expectation that every customer should be passing this test that i think the fca would be expecting there to be a fail rate what that what that rate should be we'll we'll wait and see but there's definitely going to be an expectation that some people should be crypto assets should be inappropriate for some investors yeah and it's probably fair to say as well that there should be a yeah, as part of the categorization process, there'll be there should be a number of people who sort of go through the process and then don't manage to categorize themselves as any of the three that you described. Um, the FCA will expect to see that uh, because otherwise that they would take that as evidence that people are just gaming the process in order yeah. to, to get access, which obviously kind of destroys the, the whole intent behind the uh, the rules in the first place. Yeah. So, so one of the, the oh, sorry, I was I just one of the, the things there as well is just the record keeping of this. So all of these things firms should be taking a note and recording who's passing who's failing how many people are coming through and so the fca are wanting those that sort of data being fed back to them so that they can track these things that we were just discussing so they want to know what the percentages are of uh people failing the, the different steps yeah exactly yeah that makes sense so so practically the so these rules come into force on the 8th of october um so in f- just under four months time now so if you're if you've got all your customers that are signed up, if you're an exchange, for example, all your customers that are signed up as of the 7th of October, on the 8th of October onwards, you what you'll need to do is to remediate all those customers by putting them through the categorization and the appropriateness tests. But they don't need the 24 hour cooling off period and they don't need the um, the personalized risk warning. Yeah, but anybody that right. anyone who signs up on the 8th or after that. Uh, as part of the sign-up process, they'll need to go through all four of those uh, of those steps. Um, so yeah, that's sort of practically how it works. Now we've already, just to 
just to cover off some of the, the problematic issues relating to all of these things, I mean, I'm sure people listening probably have already identified a, a ton of problematic things. Yeah, you know, these things are th these things are designed to be difficult in terms of you know getting customers signed up. We're not going to go through the the problems of simply you know the fact that this will reduce um, uh, customer signups, of course, as successful signups. That is obviously a problem, but there are a number of issues in terms of implementation of of these rules, which I think are are quite complex. We've already been through the definition of a direct offer and sort of when the frictions apply. Uh, so we won't go back to that again. But I think one of the crucial pieces around this is, um, you know, is this actually, are these measures actually going to be effective for a start? So, you know, do we think that customers will actually uh, genuinely be stopped from making impulse purchases, which is what the FCA's intention is? I suppose we, we wait to see on that. But even more importantly, there's the big question around whether or not offshore firms are going to have these types of frictions included. And if you, as a customer, you sign up to a platform that has implemented these frictions, you then find out you've got a 24 hour cooling off period, but you're desperate to trade in the market. There'll, there'll be plenty of firms out there that will enable you to be able to sign up in minutes. Uh, and there is a worry, obviously, that therefore there's it's UK customers being pushed offshore. Um, which obviously is, is not something that always influences the, the regulators. But in this in this market, it's definitely a realistic prospect. So there's definitely a nervousness in relation to that. The other thing is is obviously related to that, it, you know, and, and not take into account the, sort of the, the detriment in relation to just reduced signups for, for um, firms that are complying with these rules. But also it's the cost of it in implementing and then operating on an ongoing basis. Um, and uh, we were quite interested, I think, Gordon, to read the cost-benefit analysis from the FCA in, in the documents that came out yesterday. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Um, so, I mean, the first one, I think, the sort of familiarisation and legal costs uh, bit of the, uh, the cost-benefit analysis that the FCA published, they expected, they've said that they, their estimate is £2,200 as a one-off cost per firm for this. But... Uh, acknowledged that there was a lot of respondents suggesting that the ongoing cost for legal advice, um, not to suggest that legal advice is extremely expensive or anything, but the, uh, this, they were expecting between 30 and 50,000 pounds due to complexity of the rules. And I think this is true. The FCA have said that this was just a one-off cost and it's just for, to, for firms to familiarise themselves with the requirements, which suggests then that they didn't take into account all of the actual costs of this implementation. Um, 2,200 pounds is not going to touch the sides when it comes to how much firms are going to be having to spend to update all of this, get familiar with it, take legal advice when things apply, um, how you're drafting your assessments, what the assessment should be covered. Um, and then, yeah, IT changes, they say that they think it'll be around £84,500 per firm for the IT changes, but to be building all of these tests, the categorization, like the record keeping, the data um, uh, in the background is, I think it's there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, quite a low estimate from the FCA there. And it'll be interesting to see whether there's any data in a year's time to see how much firms have actually been spending on average, because I think the, uh, yeah, the FCA are vastly underestimating the impact that this is going to have on firms in the UK. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, it, our experience of having advised firms on this uh, to date is that there is a lot of work to be done, and particularly in terms of, of build. You know, the it's a, a very significant redesign of the onboarding flow. And um, and, you know, that takes significant amount of IT um, build cost as well as a ton of other stuff. 
um, and ongoing compliance, yeah, will be will be crucial uh, because this is not an area that uh, you'd want to get wrong because I think the FCA is going to be quite hot on this. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that they can very easily assess since they can, you know, they're quite happy to um, to test firms by putting FCA employees through onboarding processes to, to see what compliance looks like. And obviously that can be done from the desk in uh, in Endeavour Square at FCA's headquarters without really, um, you know, without even needing to ask the firm's questions. So we will see uh, this stuff being tested by the FCA. Um, and I think probably another problematic issue we've got is in relation to consumer duty, where although, well, people who are listening to this podcast may not be that familiar with consumer duty, depending on where you are located. But this is a flagship policy of the FCA that is being brought into force during the course of this year. And it doesn't apply to crypto firms or to registered firms, but it does apply to payments firms, uh, but more importantly, for these purposes, to investment firms. And so whilst crypto isn't covered by the consumer duty, uh, if you are getting a third party approver to approve your financial promotions, that third party approver will be subject to consumer duty themselves because they will be an investment firm. And so when they are approving your promotions, they will have to consider the consumer duty. And what that means is that they'll have to consider when they are approving promotions, what the you know, what good customer outcomes look like in relation to that that sort of approval. And so there is a, a nervousness that that will essentially bring uh, UK firms crypto asset products into scope of consumer duty where they are. Sorry, not UK firms, but firms generally who are seeking uh, approval of financial promotions that the the approvers will have to consider the consumer duty and therefore those crypto firms products will effectively be indirectly covered by the consumer duty, which obviously um, will be very difficult because this time, obviously, you know, good customer outcomes and things. It, there's a there's a whole ton of stuff that needs to be done to sort of to to comply with consumer duty. And it's a very complex um, regime. So it's something that that potentially could be quite complex for the approvers to navigate and therefore difficult for uh, those firms that are seeking third party approvals to actually, uh, you know, to get get these kind of things approved. I mean, yeah, we said yesterday uh, when we were discussing the approvers and how limited in number they were and what what's in it for them, really. And this does just seem to be adding another layer of complexity and cost and difficulty for them and yeah it'd be interesting to see how many that may have done it are now thinking twice yeah exactly so i think that's from me that's probably it don't know gordon any other problematic issues on your mind i think i mean the main one that i'm thinking of is that yeah that offshore firms aren't having to do this and i'm wanting to see what the, the number of uk customers that have been trading whether that goes down, whether that just goes down for trading with UK firms as opposed to the offshore firms. Um, I think, yeah, the effectiveness of these is going to be interesting when it's not a level playing field and UK firms are going to be having far higher standards to adhere to than everywhere else in the world. So we'll see. Yeah, indeed, we will. Well, okay, well, um, I think that's probably it for now then. Uh, Thanks, Gordon. Uh, Hopefully everybody found that this was an informative session. Um, As always, if you have any questions, please do just drop us a message on LinkedIn or uh, drop us an email, whatever's easiest for you. Uh, We're very happy to talk to you um, on any issues you're finding in relation to implementation of this. So yeah, please do get in touch if you have any questions you'd like to ask. But otherwise, thank you very much for listening and hope uh, hope you found it very useful. 
Thank you.